0: It was a disaster from beginning to end. As is outlined in the book, they did nothing for her. They, she had one period of 45 minutes a week and there was nothing else. It was so bad, uh, they were so incompetent. It was just a private institution taking money. I mean, it, was, it really, really was a disgrace.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. In the early hours of the 28th of July, 2016, Colette McCulloch was hit and killed by a bus. 18 hours earlier, Colette had walked out of the specialist care facility for autistic adults where she was being treated. Throughout Colette's short life, her parents, Andy and Amanda, sought out medical professionals to try to explain and ease their young daughter's extraordinary mind. Since Colette's death, Andy and Amanda have been fighting various medical and legal authorities to uncover the failings in her care and treatment. In our interview, author Andy McCulloch tells the story of his daughter's life and untimely death, the years in which her autism went undiagnosed, her lifelong battle with eating disorders, and the lack of support for her complex needs. In spite of these challenges, Colette forged a path to university to pursue her passion for literature and to have her writing published. Over the past year, Andy and Amanda have written a book about their family's experience with the healthcare system and they titled it, Why Can't You Hear Me? It includes some of Colette's writing where she articulates her experiences grappling with a world forever at odds with her. With this book, Colette's dream of having her words published has come to fruition. Colette's story is ultimately a call to action and a message of hope for a future in which autistic people will be better understood, appropriately cared for, and able to flourish. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counsellor for dealing with your own medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counselling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Andy McCulloch and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Andy's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks. Thanks, Andy. So, my first question to you is the same first question I have for all of my guests: Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like?
0: Uh, I grew up in Scotland. Uh, I don't have a Scottish accent now, but because I went to school in England, but I was born in Scotland in the town of Ayr, which is the home was the home of uh, Robert Burns, who is quite a well-known famous Scottish poet, and I grew up on a farm. My dad was a farmer, he had been a pilot in the Fleet Air Arm, and the Fleet Air Arm is a branch of the Navy, it's the Air Force of the Navy really. He'd been a pilot instructor and a pilot uh, with the Fleet Air Arm and indeed with a civil airline called scottish aviation he then retired because he was too old to fly and became a farmer he was a well-meaning but not very good farmer he made a he made a good life for us but it was uh, always running downhill and it was a tough tough road because he wasn't really a farmer which my mother knew and tried to explain to him, but he, he wasn't given to that. He, he was an interesting guy. He was a romantic farmer, but not really a practical one. I moved south for some reason. uh, With the school I was at, I was pushed into doing some acting. Decided, in fact, I I was given, I was made to do some acting as a punishment because I behaved rather badly and it was meant to be service to the school. And in fact, I really enjoyed it and I got off on it and uh, I went on to do a number of plays there and then I I went on to become a professional actor and which then developed into becoming a professional writer uh, for TV and theatre and film. So that's been my career uh, and that, that took me south to London and In my adult life with my family, we've lived in London, or briefly, we lived for about five, six years in France, uh, which I like very much. I'm very fond of France. But now we're back in London.
1: Okay, so, yeah, I didn't expect your personal story to go from farm boy to actor to writer. So that was a bit of a surprise, uh, but we're here to ta- today to talk about your family's how your family's life intersected with the healthcare system, and the book that you that you wrote and is going to be published quite soon. So take us on that journey. When did that start? We have two children, Amanda and I. Uh,
0: our older daughter, uh, Chloe who's, we had, I guess you could say as parents, the easiest ride you could have. She was was always very easy, fitted in with things. She didn't have problems, very bright. She's now an editor of a magazine in London, has three children of her own. So she's very centered, very, sorted out sort of person really you didn't you didn't run into of course we had you know the usual rows you have with teenagers etc but but not a lot I mean she really was pretty centered our younger daughter arrived and she was the opposite from the beginning Colette was always you always felt you were on the edge of something she was a magnetic child. You sort of you, your attention was just drawn to her, uh, and it didn't seem to matter what it was. She would always people would always look to her. But she's had problems at school from very early on. She was dyslexic. She had re- real, really bad reading problems. Then be- developed obsessive compulsive disorder. She couldn't go into certain places. She had to go through certain routines. She developed an eating disorder, anorexia, nervosa. She was highly intelligent, but couldn't relate to other people. Couldn't relate to uh, her peer group. She never had many friends. She'd have one close friend sometimes, but never, never many. And so, she started to really struggle at school academically she was fine apart from mathematics she could never get a hold of that but she was academically very good but she couldn't socially she just couldn't interrelate with people she always felt different now we battling really most of the time with her anorexia, which is an, I don't know how much you know about anorexia, but it is an awful illness. It affects the whole family.
1: Yeah, so for people who aren't familiar with the term anorexia nervosa, what is that?
0: Anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder and it's an eating disorder that makes kids, generally girls, not always, generally girls, and they have the idea of food is just repellent to them or perhaps actually very attractive to them, but they push it away. They're terrified of becoming fat. They are body dysmorphic nearly always. They, in other words, they think that they are much bigger than they are, uh, and it's, very, it's totally real. I mean, the, the mistake people make is to think, oh, they're just putting it on. No, no, this is real. And this, this that's how they feel. And it's an enormously debilitating illness. She reached terribly low weights. I mean, uh, we're really, t- we're talking about five, five and a half stone she went down to. kilos. Okay, so very light. Oh, terrifyingly light. Now, what we were dealing with then, Amanda and I, was someone with a a terrible eating disorder that was threatening her life. And she went into clinics, a clinic for this, a a very good one, uh, at a hospital called Maudsley in London with an extremely good uh, consultant who has written a, something in the book, so she's she's okay with it, uh, called Professor Janet Treasure, who's one of the, leading, the world's leading experts on anorexia. And what was puzzling about Colette was that she had all the things of anorexia, but there was something else there that wasn't identified. Because she would just close her life down she would she, her room in the hospital she wouldn't have anything any any decoration on the wall no paintings no drawings no photographs Everything it was a bare cell like a monk's cell she would live in and she shut everything off and she isolated and We couldn't work out what it was. Uh, Is it some sort of arrested development, her inability? And it was only by the time she reached, I'm jumping forward here, but it was only by the time she reached the age of 33, after she'd been to university and taken a degree, that she was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. Now, I don't know how much I have to explain uh, what high-functioning autism is. It used to be really uh, described as Asperger's syndrome. Uh, and in different parts of the world, it probably still is. It's... Often people with autism have difficulties speaking or uh, writing, etc. She didn't. She... Often people with autism will sort of avoid your eye, look down. Uh, they will often find it very hard to express themselves. Colette didn't. Colette could look you in the eye, she could smile, she could, but what became clear, and this has only become clear relatively recently, is that women or girls with autism present completely differently from boys boys men do tend to look at the floor and they or have the sort of the the rain dance syndrome you know the, that 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 idea of the one person brilliant with numbers but who can't relate to people that that men tend to do that women tend to mask their autism, cover it up by smiling, by being welcoming. Uh, Now, I don't know why that is, why there should be that gender difference, but it's certainly there that the women cover it up much better than men do. So it's many more men have been diagnosed with autism than women. It used to be thought, until ooh, only 15, 20 years ago, that it was a male condition. Uh, we have a very famous um, psychiatrist over here by the name of Baron Cohen, who's in fact the cousin of the film star, Baron Cohen. Uh, but he's, he, and he is the UK's leading expert on autism. He thought it was a male condition until about 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Then they thought, well, maybe it was about 10 men to every woman who has autism. They now realize that it's probably more like two men to every woman who has autism. And it's my suspicion that it's actually equal. By the time we identify uh, the women with autism, we will realize that that is the case. The mistake is in thinking of it as an illness. It's not an illness. It's a condition whereby people see the world in a different way. We go to a film, go to a movie with Colette uh, and Amanda and I would go with her and we'd come out after the film and it was as though we'd seen completely different movies what she'd got from it and what we'd got with it were completely different things she just saw things differently her own writing is extraordinary now she all the writing i use a lot of her own her writing in the book because it's it's well it's brilliant actually it's, it's brilliant what it does is it really does sum up the autistic condition in the way she writes. But we didn't know she was autistic when she wrote that stuff. She didn't know she was autistic, but you read it and you read it now, realize it and you think this is so obvious. She just couldn't relate to other people and she didn't understand why they couldn't relate to her. And, well, she spent her whole life feeling different and on the outside. So that that was really what happened. And she was 33 by the time she was identified as being on the autistic
1: spectrum. And by
0: 35, she was dead.
1: Oh, by 35, she was dead? Yeah. Uh, Okay, before we go there, so when yeah. Colette got the diagnosis and your family got that sort of insight into what was happening in her experience in life, how, how was that diagnosis? Some folks would find it a relief, other folks would find it tragic. She,
0: well, our reaction and her reaction were different. Our reaction was, thank God, we've we've identified what we're dealing with here because we just didn't know, we've been struggling. I mean, All the time she was at university taking a degree in English, she, she was going through a very difficult time socially and we had no idea why. We thought this is exactly what you wanted to do was to go to university and study English I mean, she loved English literature. She she read. I mean, she read Milton. She'd read Shakespeare. She'd read all these these great writers, and she could write about them brilliantly. At the same time, she couldn't actually have a conversation with a fellow student. She could read all that Chaucer, and she could read uh, all this stuff. She couldn't. But yet, at the same time, she was very attracted to reading, uh, I I don't know whether it probably doesn't make any sense to you in the States, Hello Magazine, which is the, in my opinion, awful, trashy paper about celebs. Uh, She adored that. Absolutely adored it. But she could then go and read Dickens uh, and adore that uh, without any problems. But she couldn't make friends so for us getting the diagnosis originally i didn't agree with it because uh uh, both amanda and i felt that i'm not i've got a nephew who was diagnosed as asperger's he's a he's a bright kid but he he has the classic look at the ground doesn't talk to you never meets your eye classically Autistic, but he's bright. I mean, he's a bright guy. He's he's at university now, um, and I thought, well, autism—that—that's what he's got. It's nothing to do with what Colette has got, because she's sort of open, la, bang. She's there. You really know when she walks in a room. You know who she is, and and she can meet your eyes and all of that. But it was only as it was gradually explained to us what autism in women meant, as opposed to autism in men. Then we began to realize, and that for us was something we thought, okay, we can go somewhere with this. For Colette, she hated it. She hated it. She just thought, you're going to label me. You're just labeling me as this. Uh, I'm not this, I'm not like that, I'm not like Rain Man, I'm not, you know, don't give me this, don't, don't tell me I'm this. Uh, and she she found it very difficult to deal with the idea that she had this condition and what she hated, she'd always hated being different. Way back when she was dyslexic and she couldn't read, and she had to be, learn to read it a, a different way. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how they teach reading in the States at the moment in the elementary schools, but uh, at that time in the UK, they taught reading by word recognition. So you un- got the shape of the word and that told you what the word was. Now they've gone back to teaching it in phonetically. So, so you begin to get that. Though obviously that has its limitations, but phonetics worked for her. Word recognition, it was just meant nothing. It was gibberish, mm-hmm. and so she, so she felt she was labelled as being stupid. And then when they said you're dyslexic, she said that's just saying I'm different. Everybody will hate me, and she. She just did not want to be different. She wanted to be like everybody else. And so saying that she was on the autistic spectrum for her was just another way of saying you're different. And that's very hard. I mean, I know a lot of people when they've been diagnosed as being on the spectrum, it's become a relief and they've been able to move forward from that. Uh, and live creative um, lives, live uh, full, very full lives. There's no there's no reason why not. And as we know, some of the most brilliant people from Einstein onwards have been on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But it's for her it 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 wasn't good. She didn't find that easy to live with.
1: Yeah, it sounds like initially, you both had this preconceived notion of what autism meant. And it had sort of a negative, especially a negative connotation for Colette. Um, But she wasn't able to, to sort of step back and see that there's a broader definition. And especially when it manifests in women, it's different, a lot different than from in men and boys. So uh, she had trouble accepting uh, the diagnosis actually sounds like she rejected the diagnosis um and so that was at 33 and what happened in the next few years
0: well what had happened she'd gone when she'd gone to university and that hadn't worked well uh because she just didn't make any friends Uh, and she didn't relate to people and she got more and more isolated and at the end of university uh towards the end of university one good relationship with a guy that she'd had uh broke up that left her on her own and out of university without a job uh she briefly got a job selling but it, it was no good. She, she lost that quite quickly. She couldn't find work. She was on her own. She didn't want to come back and live with us. She, uh, she didn't want the confines of be, being with her parents because she'd gone to university late. Uh, she was, by the time she left university, taken her degree, she was uh, in her late 20s. She continued, she liked the city she was in, which is Brighton in Sussex in South, Southeast England, uh, it's by the sea. And it's a ni- it's a very nice place, it's a nice city. And that's where she felt at home. So she wanted to stay there, but her life just sort of unraveled. She, it was, became more and more chaotic. She had a series of appalling boyfriends uh who increasingly became uh they were violent and abusive and took what money she had she was living on benefits uh so she became more and more unhappy we came we were back in london and we thought well this can't we can't go on uh and the social services who were trying to help her said it can't go on she've got you've got to come uh, and live in some sort of sheltered accommodation because uh, I mean she was getting thrown out of the the apartments she lived in uh, because you'd have violent boyfriends come in or I and mean, it was got very unpleasant we had to take one of them to court charge him with abuse so we thought the best thing, this was when the diagnosis of autism came up, was the best thing was for her to go in into some sort of accommodation that would help her with her autism. And she went to a, a place in Brighton, first of all, but that was, it wasn't adequate for uh, dealing with autism. It was just a sort of hostel that looked after kids who were having a tough time. And then eventually she was placed in a a specialist unit uh, in Bedfordshire, north of London, uh, 50 miles north of London, whereas Brighton's 50 miles south, so 100 miles away. Uh, And she was put in this institution that was supposed to help, was supposed to be a specialist in dealing with autism. Uh, It was a private clinic, but it was paid for by the National Health Service, because there's no way we could have afforded that. It was a disaster from beginning to end. They did, as is outlined in the book, they did nothing for her. She had one period of 45 minutes a week psychological help, and there was nothing else. And she got more and more frustrated. It got more and more difficult. And they used to let her go, leave the unit at weekends and go and stay in hotels. Uh, it was just extraordinary, there was, it was so bad. Uh, they were so incompetent, and it was just a private institution taking money. Uh, I mean, it was, it really, really was a disgrace. Uh, We eventually got to the point where we, along with the local health people, we tried to find another placement for her. And she was about to move to another placement. Uh, But she had already once jumped off a bridge into the river. But on the occasion that she died, uh, she'd been out, she'd been out of the clinic for 18 hours when she was only supposed to have be been out for four hours and she came back at uh, 2.30 in the morning walking on the large road and she was run over and killed by Laurie. Um, and that was just, we had been, begging them to keep her safe until she was moved to her new placement. She had a new placement, somewhere which looked a lot more hopeful. And they just didn't do it. They did nothing. So there's been an inquest, uh, which is the half, uh, about a third of the book is about the inquest, the investigation into what went wrong. But normal law in England is adversarial but uh, largely someone is accused of something, they plead innocent, they have a defence lawyers team and, and a prosecution team and they argue it out and a jury makes up their mind. On an inquest, it's run by a man called, or a woman called a coroner. It's inquisitorial in as much as he or she is independent and looks into what what went wrong here rather than adversarial but they say it isn't adversarial in fact of course it is adversarial uh it's a, it's just not true the adversarial process is because we're saying right someone did something wrong There was negligence there were failings here and of course all the people who committed the failings get the most expensive lawyers they can find and fight that so it becomes an adversarial fight and it's they they try to say in English law that we're having a fight about this now you don't need uh, legal representation if you're a bereaved family if you've lost a loved one in state care and I say you do because the coroner may be independent, but the banks of lawyers behind the institutions are not, and they come in and they they carve you up. So we went through that process, uh, which the first coroner we had refused to actually listen to what we were saying and said, I'm only interested in how this happened, I'm not interested in why it happened. It's not, I don't in, I don't propose to look at that and I don't want any, and I don't want you interfering. I don't want any shouting in the court. I mean, he was talking to two people in their 70s. I mean, <laughs> what do you think we are? Hooligans, unbelievable. So we had to take him to High Court to get rid of him, which is all all in the book. Uh, and that that that's quite takes quite a lot to do because coroners have a lot of power. And in the end, he recused himself, admitted he'd shown bias against us,
1: and got out. And we got another coroner who was excellent. I will be. So the, you got a, a new coroner in charge of the inquest. And where are you in that process now? We have held
0: the inquest. The clinic uh, stroke care home uh, that she was at had been found uh, to have committed many failings that they had to put right. I'm not convinced they have put them right plus the health services who also let her down. Uh, So the failings were found. And then I thought, well, what best thing we can do as a testament to Colette is
1: to write a book about her. This is the book for people who are only listening and not watching. The book is called
0: Why Can't You Hear Me? And the the reason it's called that is that that's what she felt right through her life, that people didn't hear her, didn't understand what she was saying. But it's also called that because why can't the law and the medical establishment hear us when we're talking about what autistic kids need and how they should be listened to not told what they know but listen to them listen to what these people are saying listen to what women like colette were saying she wrote fantastic stuff
1: your point about that the medical system and and the larger political system need to actually listen to people living with autism because those are the ones who can tell you what it's like and what their needs are yes they are the people who can tell you there's
0: a there's a very good book by who uh, wrote for rolling stone magazine and he wrote a, a book called neuro tribes and it's steve silberman it's a wonderful book uh, it's a it's a beautifully researched book and it's a it's a very good book but this is a, this is a equally good but let, let me just read this little extract from from her stuff. It's from a prose poem called Broken Teapot, in which she likened herself to a broken teapot. This is just the last stanza of it. So is this the answer to breaking out, that my arms are tied? My eyes filled with the mists of your deception. I call it that not because you wish to deceive, but because the colours of your perception have been mixed all wrong. To understand me, you read a book that claimed to explain all my dilemmas. You set out with the express and good intention of solving the mysteries of this oversensitive high activated CD player that picks up on all the particles of dust hindering sweet music's issue. But what you missed, or what your blessed Bible forgot to relate, was this one and simple rule. I am the sum of my parts. Without my tape deck, my stop, play, Record, there is no I, no me to which definition could be given. I am an an entity bereft of that other part that makes me function, that makes me whole. I'm a teapot without a handle. I'll burn you when you touch. She wrote that when she was aged 20, 21.
1: And so what does, how do you interpret that stanza? And then I'll tell you what the meaning was for me. Okay. She is her full self, the things that
0: she did that we found impossible to deal with, the fact uh, her behaviours and things, that is her. That's the whole her. Don't try and separate a bit of her off, a bit of me off, because I won't be me anymore. You can't do that. I am my whole. And if you do do that, if you do take that away from me, I'll burn you when you touch, because that's what will happen. I will be unlivable with, if you like so listen to me understand me and we can go somewhere but don't think you can just do this to me tell me to do that and expect me to continue to function
1: right okay
0: that's what i get i don't know what you get
1: uh the part where she said that uh part of her was missing, yeah. to me, that felt like, because she had prefaced that by saying that she was a whole person. Mm-hmm. So for me, that represented that society had said, there's something missing about you. This was the messaging she gets back from society. Mm-hmm. So there's that conflict between she knows she's a whole person and society saying, we're missing something. We're not understanding. We're not hearing you.
0: Yes, I think that's true as well, I think that's true.
1: So often uh, with my counseling clients and often with my podcast guests, there is a sort of a process where they've had this traumatic experience, medical error obviously, because that's what we talk about, but often there's also this growth where they make meaning out of their experience. And it sounds like this book for you is potentially making meaning out of Collette's experience.
0: I think it's an attempt to do so, yes. Uh, how successful at this stage, I don't know. Uh, for, for successful in terms of making meaning for me uh, and how successful the book is, well, that's for others to judge. Uh, For those who read it, uh, friends have asked me whether I feel that having done this, having written it, because the inquest ended in 2019 and we're now in 2021 and the writing was finished last year during the time we were locked down which has of course been a fairly extraordinary time to be writing it in the middle of a pandemic one of the things i i don't bring out the pandemic in the book but part of what one of the questions i pose in the book is why look at the world they're killing children day by day in yemen and Syria and uh, the appalling things that happen. Kids are starving to death. People are starving to death. Particular politics, but the behaviour of some of our populist politicians uh, around the place on both sides of the Atlantic uh, and elsewhere are just appalling and completely lacking in under well lacking in caring actually. They may understand, but they don't care. Trying to make sense of that, one of the points I raise is that why should we go to all this trouble over one young woman who died a a sad and tragic death on a motorway sidewalk at 2.30 in the morning when there's so much other suffering going on my point is apart from obviously for us personally it was devastating and it was the it ripped the whole part of our family from us and left us completely bereft but apart from that there is something that if you don't you cannot just sweep a life under the carpet and the first coroner we met said As far as I'm concerned, this is a simple road traffic accident, and it is merely a question of whether the lorry driver was at fault or Colette was at fault walking in front of the lorry. And that's all I'm concerned with. And that attitude is exactly what has to be dealt with. You cannot build a caring society if that's how you value, even one human life because if you value one human life like that yet how you're going to value all human lives and it's a very short step as we've seen all over the world it's just not bothering just sweep them under the carpet and that's why it matters and if a country like the uk that is supposedly the fifth or sixth richest in the world, I'm never quite sure which, depends which politician is speaking. If a country like the UK can't actually take that on and do something about it and look at what happened to Colette and think this has got to change because I think you'll find we have come across since Colette's death, so many bereaved families who have lost loved ones often children but not always bereaved families who are left with no explanations of why their loved one died and that is not acceptable because unless we know why these deaths in care take place We won't stop them happening. We have to know why they happened. And that's really the purpose of the book, is that and a testament to her, to Colette, because there's a lot of her writing and a lot of her artwork in the book. And it's a testament to her that. She lived. She was here. She's not swept under the carpet, like that guy I wanted to do. And that's 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 why, at the end of the inquest, when we got more or less the result we wanted, not entirely, because I I don't think it went. I don't think the judgment went far enough, but almost entirely got got what it deserved. We felt that we had to put a statement down a testament to Colette, and a testament to all these kids, autistic kids, that their life opportunities must change. And that will only happen, will only happen if people start listening. And that's why can't you hear me? That's the reason.
1: Wow, yeah. When you ask that question, why does Colette's story matter? Why does one person's story matter? And then you go on to tell about how it's really because it explains what's wrong with the system.
0: Yeah.
1: And the other thing that I really took about what you just said is that uh, even though Colette felt like it was really hard for people to hear her, why can't you hear me? Now that her voice is in the book, it's hard for people not to hear her.
0: Well, if they read the book, yes.
1: There's a, there a type of permanency to it now.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we thought about that, we thought of a lot, because both Amanda and I have worked in the media, Amanda was an actress and I, I, I was an actor, and we thought about trying to make it as a, a documentary film and we thought, no, actually a book she loved books and she wrote well and her art is there and to try and make a documentary with someone playing her just seemed wrong it didn't seem the way to go and a book
1: is there and hopefully hopefully it will get out there hopefully yes absolutely so uh we're recording this on april 12th and it'll be a couple of weeks before i get to publish it uh when does your book come out and where can people find it
0: the book comes out uh on the 21st of this month uh it's available bookshop.org do it here uh i think i saw it listed on amazon
1: it is, I was going
0: to say, it's listed on Amazon. Uh,
1: so if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, we connected on Twitter, so I can put your Twitter handle in the show notes as well as the connect, the links to Amazon and to the bookshop. Are there any other social media outlets that folks can connect with you on?
0: I, I'm on Facebook.
1: So I'll include that link too.
0: It's under Andy McCulloch.
1: Okay, so they should be able to find you that way.
0: You should be able to find me, Andy, Andy McCulloch, it should be easy enough.
1: Okay, awesome. So thank you so much, Andy, for sharing your story, your family story, and for for getting this book out there. Um, It's important that people know about autism and that people know about how the system doesn't really respond in the way autistic people need. Um, And the other thing that comes to mind, because I meant to mention this earlier, is that I was told by an autistic person that when you meet one autistic person, you've only ever met one autistic person. They're all different.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, Steve Silberman makes that point very strongly in his book Neurotribes, Uh, and he's absolutely right. You've met, you meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. We progress in understanding these various conditions. We're all on the spectrum somewhere. And it's it's not a, it's it's not divided. Oh, he's autistic, she's autistic, she's not autistic. It's, there's a whole lot of stuff going, going through this. I, I think people will understand that more and more. And another thing to do, I, I meant to mention way back, I just said that Colette suffered from anorexia nervosa, she did, uh, when she was being treated for anorexia nervosa uh, at uh, the Maudsley Hospital in London, at that time, there was no connection between that and autism, they now know and one of the people who's written one of, uh, a preface to the book, Professor Will Mandy, that up to forty percent of girls with anorexia are on the autistic spectrum, and only fifteen years earlier, when Colette was in the Maudsley Hospital, they didn't. That was not an, that was not known. And you would treat someone who was on the autistic spectrum with anorexia very differently from how you would treat someone who is just anorexic. And the extraordinary thing is that at the Maudsley, Professor Janet Treasure, who was uh, Colette's consultant uh, for anorexia, was working in a building and just down the corridor, from her was Professor Lorna Wing, who was the first psychiatrist to establish that autism was a spectrum. And she did what was called the Camberwell study where she looked into 10,000 people across Camberwell area of London and established that the uh, autism was not just an illness or a condition, it was a spectrum that people were on and those two women were working only a matter of metres apart from each other and the con- hadn't made the connection yet. They were both brilliant but they hadn't connected the fact that yes, anorexic are often on the autistic spectrum and it's not entirely surprising because there are a lot of other conditions that go along. With autism, uh, like gender dysphoria, uh, and which is, I don't think, is entirely surprising because if you feel you're different and you're autistic, possibly one of the things you feel is wrong about you is your your gender identification, that it's not a big step
1: to go to go in that direction. So, there... I, I I wonder if that gender dysmorphia, which dysmorphia pathologizes, but being neurodivergent may just mean that gender identity doesn't manifest in a binary situation.
0: Yes, uh,
1: yeah. Uh, Despite
0: all the technical terms, that more or less makes sense to me.
1: We have much to learn about neurodiversity and autism in the spectrum. Massive amount,
0: absolutely massive amount.
1: For sure. Well, thank you, Andy. This has been so edifying for me, and I'm sure lots of folks would be edified as well. Well, a big thanks to Andy for sharing his family's experience with the healthcare system. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with your own medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.